This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Only a few weeks in, and already 2023 is proving to be tumultuous on all fronts. In terms of the weather, the East Coast and Midwest are faring well after winter storms, but there is no rest for the West Coast. As of Wednesday, 17 people have been killed during deadly storms currently drenching California. Hit particularly hard was Santa Cruz and Montecito counties. But the whole state is reporting not just torrential rain, but mudslides, flooding, sinkholes, and literal rivers in the sky. Back in the bullseye. Tonight, it's waterlogged Northern California swamped by yet another deluge as a flood of problems washes over the region. After a rare and violent round of hail, thunder, and lightning in the Bay Area, flash flooding, debris flows, and mudslides have buried highways, bridges, and train tracks. The costly damage to statewide infrastructure, which experts say could top a billion dollars, is skyrocketing. California's economy has recently been upgraded from the sixth to the fourth in the world making California's economy larger than Germany and the United Kingdom if the state were an independent nation. After a decades-long mega-drought, much more rain will be needed to fully lift California out of its current conditions. Now, according to water and climate experts at the University of California, at least three or four more storms of this magnitude would be needed to fully refill the reservoirs. And then they need to repeat the extreme rain pattern for several more years in a row to restore the state to its former glory. California, here I come, right back where I started from. Going into 2023, Republican voters' top three issues were inflation. I mean, that's by a very large margin. Then it's immigration. And lastly, abortion. So far, the new majority in the House under the shaky leadership of Kevin McCarthy has, in just a few days, set their agenda. And it goes like this. Abortion, impeachment, defunding the IRS, and the slow dismantling of our current government. I wonder how voters are going to feel about that. As soon as House Republicans finally performed the basic task of electing a speaker, they started enacting their revenge against House Democrats. And it was long planned. After the House removed extremist Republicans Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene from their committee assignments in 2021, Kevin McCarthy promised to get even. Now he tells Punchbowl News that, as Speaker, quote, he would block California Democrats Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from spots in the House Intelligence Committee and move to take Minnesota Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar off the Foreign Affairs Committee. And just to be clear about what this is actually all about, McCarthy's already fundraising off his promise to, quote, fire the Democratic members from their committees, with one reporter posting this screenshot of not one, not two, but three fundraising emails sent out in less than an hour on this topic. Republicans introduced the Born Alive Bill Wednesday and resolutions to protect churches and anti-abortion ghouls from the general public, blaming the Biden administration for not protecting anti-abortion activists and churches after the Supreme Court leaked its opinion that would overturn Roe. Now, they are looking to protect those so-called crisis pregnancy centers and churches that ensnare frightened pregnant women with misinformation and pro-life doctrine. Not a word about our current anti-Semitism crisis, that I can assure you, and the attacks on synagogues and Jewish graveyards. 
No, this is the work of the Christian coalition, and they're not worried about anyone's religious freedom, but their own. The most important right we have, though, is your right to talk. Because if you can't talk, you can't practice your faith, you can't share your faith, you can't petition your government. You, The right to speak is the most important, and that's what they're going after. And that's why we've had dozens of whistleblowers come talk to us. We want to focus on that because we want it all to stop. We want the double standard to stop. This idea that if, oh, if you're a pro-life activist, you're going to get your door kicked in, you're going to get arrested and handcuffed in front of your seven kids and your spouse for simply praying in front of abortion clinic and telling the guy who was harassing your son to knock it off. You're going to have the FBI raid your home. But the, the protest that went on, the at, at Supreme Court justices' homes in the aftermath of the leak of the Dobbs opinion, oh, no problem there. Americans are sick and tired of it. And what we want, we, we don't want to go after anyone. We just want it to stop. The Born Alive bill is also fucking ridiculous. They demand that healthcare practitioners do all that they can to preserve the life and health of the child. I mean, of course, what doctor wouldn't? But what about the mother? And the bill wants to penalize doctors for the intentional killing of a born alive child. Even though the law already exists, infanticide is a crime in the United States. And by the way, nobody's just killing newborn babies willy-nilly. Speaker, I now yield uh, one minute to the distinguished gentlelady from California, Ms. Kamala Gardove. The gentlelady is recognized. Thank you, Madam Speaker. I rise in opposition to H.R. 26. We didn't hop in a time machine back to the 1970s. It's 2023, and we all know what this is about. It is not about the protection of newborn children. It's about control. It's about Republicans' continued desire to control women, take away their freedoms, limit their bodily autonomy, plunge poor women deeper into poverty, and further marginalize those already not seen. It's about intimidating, silencing, and criminalizing doctors. It's about the nationwide abortion ban that Republicans have been itching to enact since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Bans that the American people have said loudly and clearly that they do not want. Late-term abortions represent literally just 1% of all abortions and only happen when a child is not viable and cannot survive outside the womb or when the mother's life is in deadly peril. So shame on the GOP for exploiting families who are already going through these sorts of heartbreaking losses. You know, we're talking about these messaging bills this week. I'm pro-life, um, but I have many exceptions. This is an issue that we should, that I want to see us take seriously. And if we're going to be serious about uh, balancing the rights of women and protecting the right to life, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. This is probably not the way to start off the week. We should be looking at measures, for example, making sure every woman has access to birth control. If you really want to get serious about this issue and reduce unwanted pregnancies, well, I've got entire counties in South Carolina that don't have a single OBGYN doctor. Those are the issues that we really need to be talking about, making a real difference in women's lives every single day all across the country. The bill isn't just tone deaf. It will never pass in Congress. But it sure lays out the priorities of the far-right control House majority. So good luck, Kevin McCarthy, because you're going to fucking need it. The example of why politicians should not be making medical decisions is because we are literally making stuff up and writing laws about it at this exact moment. Um, a child does not come out partway alive and then doctors kill it. That's not a thing. That's not a thing today. It's not a thing tomorrow. It's not a thing 10 years ago. It's not a thing. So for us to legislate things that don't exist in real life, again, 
perfect example of why politicians should not practice health care. Also introduced this week was the Family and Small Businesses Protection Act, which would rescind $72 billion of the $80 billion for the Internal Revenue Service, included in the Inflation Reduction Act. Ever reaching a unanimous agreement on who should be their Speaker of the House, House Republicans are now unanimous about two things. First, House Republicans unanimously voted for a bill to defund the police. That's right, the very first thing House Republicans voted on was defunding the police. The police they want to defund are the federal tax police. House Republicans have voted unanimously to defund the Internal Revenue Service in a way that would specifically target the capacity of the Internal Revenue Service to investigate the tax returns of the very richest people in America. Republicans voted unanimously to make it easier for America's richest people to get away with tax crimes. But check this. The Congressional Budget Office claims that the proposal will raise the deficit by more than $114 billion over the next 10 years. So why would they support anything that raised the national debt by $114 billion? Simple. As long as the rich get to keep their Trump tax breaks, Republicans could care fucking less. The bill passed along party lines, but both this and the Born Alive bill are dead on arrival, given Democrats control the Senate and the White House's opposition to this bullshit legislation will never let it pass. Perhaps the most dramatic moment of the Chinese Communist Party's Congress came when former President Hu Jintao was abruptly escorted out of the closing ceremony. He'd been sitting right next to Xi Jinping when two men came to escort him from his seat. Some analysts speculated the move was an assertion of Xi's dominance. Chinese state media later said it was because the former leader was not feeling well. One bright spot, however, is a resolution approved on Tuesday to create a select committee on the strategic competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. The measure passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. In fact, 146 House Democrats, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries and former Speaker Nancy Pelosi amongst them, joined with Republicans in approving the new committee. The committee will be investigating and submitting policy recommendations on the status of the Chinese Communist Party's economic, technological and security progress and its competition with the United States. Considering the vast amount of technology that China steals from the United States daily, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said, It is a top priority as we talk about outcompeting China. And Biden is on board. Cliff, they know if they follow this MAGA. Proposals to cut Medicare and Social Security, which is one of the things they're proposing. Let's see how, you know, that's another lesson. George Bush tried that back in uh, 2005, and Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid and I fought that tooth and nail, and we won. So I think there's going to be, not in the, as I said, not in the next couple of weeks, but if the Republican Party 
First, if they're interested in working with us, we'll work with them as we've shown we can. And, but second, mm -hmm. if they don't, it's going to lead to their to the to their own detriment. And you could, you know, what happened in 2022 could happen even to a greater extent in 2024. You can't be an extreme and win in America. Now, on the flip side, Jim Jordan is doing what he does best: bullying the public from his position of power. Jordan wants to establish a new panel to investigate the, quote, weaponization of the federal government, which means they're going to investigate the investigators. I'm joined now by Congressman Ruben Gallego, Democrat of Arizona, who served on the Armed Services, Veterans Affairs and National Resources Committee. Um, Congressman, first, let's start with this new subcommittee. Uh, I guess there's a bunch of ways that you can imagine the, a version of this being a perfectly legitimate inquiry. Uh, no. you're, you're, you're shaking your head. Why not? No, there is no person. This is a cover-up committee. It is a sanctioned cover-up committee by Kevin McCarthy that he has sanctioned for the sole purpose of getting those radicals to vote for him for speaker. And it is essentially giving power to those that are being investigated to have power over those that have the right to investigate them. This is as if we gave the mafia the right to investigate the South District of New York uh, Attorney's Office. The formation of this stupid new committee was approved solely by House Republicans, pissed off by how the former president was rightly investigated for his constant criminal behavior. This committee is just an excuse to intimidate investigators and confuse the facts in the Russia probe and the Mar-a-Lardo documents case. Now, if this committee was being formed to investigate the real violations of citizen civil liberties that are going on in this country, like mine, most of us would be all for it. But this is just another ploy to protect Trump from prosecution by the DOJ, as well as to criticize the FBI because they had the audacity to enforce a subpoena and retrieve classified documents from the Mango Mussolini. And big news, federal authorities are now reviewing classified documents from Joe Biden's vice presidency after sensitive materials were found at Biden's think tank office. According to reports, the classified documents contained intelligence materials related to, among other things, Ukraine and Iran. Yeah, but I mean, this is, this, this is, it's different to, <clears throat> it's different to Trump, right? Because it's different to the Trump. I'm saying it's not the same as when Trump. <laughs> A lot of rain in California lately, isn't there? A lot of... All this is made more complicated by the fact that President Biden apparently had classified documents in his possession as well, dating back from his time in office when he was vice president under Obama. And as of late Wednesday, another fucking batch of classified government records was found by Biden's legal team following the initial discovery. Biden voluntarily handed them over without even being asked. Trump, on the other hand, was given multiple opportunities to come clean and refused. And yet, that has not stopped newly empowered Republicans from equating the two situations in the dumbest way possible. Why aren't they in there right now with subpoenas going through every single record there? Where's Classified the documents. The FBI doesn't raid someone who's already cooperating. FBI, we're here for the documents. Oh yeah, we um, turned them in yesterday. Oh. Oh, okay. You seem bummed. Yeah, no, it's just, uh, we put on our windbreakers and everything, and, um, would you mind, is this dumb? Can we kick in your door? No, it is dumb. 
We're gonna go. And while the similarities between the Trump case and the Biden case are practically non-existent, it now puts Merrick Garland in one hell of a position. Classified records are supposed to be stored in secure locations. And under the Presidential Records Act, White House records go to the National Archives when the administration ends, period, end of story. Biden says he didn't know the documents were there, and unlike Trump, he's bent over backwards to help the investigation. Now this story is still unfolding, but it's an unwelcome wrinkle for those of us itching to see Trump finally prosecuted for something. One of the unexpected features of the four-day 15-ballot fight over the House Speaker's gavel was when Texas Congressman Chip Roy nominated second-term Florida Republican Congressman Byron Donalds for Speaker. Donalds got the votes of all 20 holdouts on three of the 15 ballots, and his nomination sparked a lot of conversation. To say the least. And lastly, Joy Reid took black Republican House Representative Byron Donalds to the woodshed on Tuesday during her show on MSNBC, The Readout. Donalds had been nominated by several of the Never Kevins as speaker in place of McCarthy, despite his decided lack of experience or leadership skills. Republicans trying to say, hey, we have a black guy too, sadly tokenized Donalds, and Reed was having none of this bullshit. After she educated Donalds on the meaning of CRT, she had to ask about Social Security, and this is how that went. Do you know that Social Security is going to be insolvent in 2035? It is not going to be. That yes, is not true. Will. That, that is, is actually not true. No, it's actually not true. Now, it's actually not true. It's actually not true. But it's actually not true. financial community. That's actually not true. That's actually not true. Will go insolvent. That's actually not true. Those are the facts. That's not true. Should we not prepare for that? What the Republican Party and what the Tea Party have proposed is privatizing Social Security, which would actually subject Social Security to the whims of the market, which I don't think that people. That's not what they paid into. No, no. If you look at the returns of the S&P. That's not true. Now, for the record, I need to retract the statement I made during our last show. One Republican did show up on the steps of the Capitol to join the Democrats to mark the anniversary of January 6th, and I'm referring to Senator Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania. And I, for one, appreciate Fitzpatrick for standing with Democrats on the right side of history. And now for the main event. Today we welcome back to our show, Reed Galen, co-founder of the Lincoln Project and an independent political strategist. A veteran public affairs and political commentator with more than 20 years experience, Reed has been involved in politics, government and business at the highest levels. Galen has spent more than a decade advising Fortune 50, Fortune 100, and Fortune 1000 companies in need of high-level counsel in the fields of strategic communications, procurement, and legislation. In addition to his private sector work, Reed has managed several high-profile ballot measure campaigns in California, Texas, and Colorado before moving to the private sector. Reed then served as deputy campaign manager for John McCain's presidential campaign and deputy campaign manager for Arnold Schwarzenegger's successful 2006 re-election campaign. 
Galen also worked on both of President George W. Bush's campaigns and served the Bush administration at both the United States Department of the Treasury and the Department of Homeland Security. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so read. The classified documents that Joe Biden turned over to the National Archives, his team immediately contacted, the way they're supposed to, the Department of Justice. And in my opinion, this whole situation is basically a nothing burger. What about you, Reed? Is there any reason to be concerned about this? Uh, I don't think legally or technically, um, but I think politically it does what... um you know, the the Trumpy MAGA people want, which is it gives them uh, a false equivalency to go on uh, and they will use it to their furthest and fullest extent. Uh, but as far as I, I can tell, I, I don't get the sense that the president or anybody else really understood what was there. Um, and it's you know, he left um, he left being the vice president went in 2017. So my guess is, is that, uh, you know, it, it was just laying around someplace, which is, again, not ideal. But to your point, they did the right thing, which is they notified the appropriate authorities and they took care of it. Right. So the question really becomes, why are all of these classified documents taken anyway? Now, this was sitting in, I believe it was a lawyer's office in some sort of a think tank uh, type of organization. You know, they asked Joe Biden the question, right? How many classified documents are we talking about? And his response was a small number of documents with classified markings were discovered on November 2nd of 2022 in a locked closet at the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement, a think tank in Washington, you know, as Biden's personal attorneys were clearing out the offices, according to this guy, Rich Saber or Sauber, however, special counsel to the president. But my real question to you goes much further than the number, because as we know, for example, from Reality Winner, it doesn't take more than one document to get your ass locked up. Right Now, yes, the Republicans are going to use this. And in my opinion, rightfully so. I think an investigation should be had in terms of why documents are not properly kept um, by NARA before the president leaves. Because you're right. I mean, this has been sitting there for many years now. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think that the, you know, a big part of this, let's, let's go back to the source is, um, you know, there are, you know, thousands of, of clearances floating around inside the United States government and outside the U S government with contractors of all stripes that has really proliferated since I'd guess nine 11. But also I think the number of people who are able to determine classification status of documents has proliferated. And I think their willingness to stamp something confidential, secret, top secret, whatever, has also um, proliferated. So I, I think that we, we're, they're probably, um, you know, top secret happy inside the federal government. I guess maybe if I were in the position of somebody, you know, I'd probably make that judgment too. First, do no harm, which is maybe somebody shouldn't see this. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, on some level, you would think after eight years, um, you know, they would have cleared all this stuff out or in the context of, of Trump, you know, in, you know, somebody would have kept track of this stuff. But I think, you know, not to not to make light of it, but Michael, I think at some point too, like who the hell knows what's there, what's not there, what gets put in a, you know, in a in a banker's box on the way out the door after, you know, eight years in office. 
Yeah, but one would think that not that's Nara's job, isn't it? That they do look before you end up taking documents back. And these, again, are stamped, classified. Now, of course, the big comparison is we're talking about a small number. It was, un, what was it, like 16 documents or something like that versus, and, you know, we'll then compare it to what was obtained from Mar-a-Lago, we're talking about 11,000 documents were stored at Mar-a-Lago, 33 boxes worth of documents, um, or is it like 15 boxes of um, that had classified materials into it? We're talking about hundreds of documents, but to me, I don't even really believe that the relevant factor is the number of documents. I, I would be curious to see whether or not NARA ends up figuring out how to come up with a better system, right? Shouldn't they have a much better system? Oh, one would think, I, I mean, I'd be interested because I don't know enough about how NARA works, um, that they were probably built at a time, Michael, when these documents were all analog all the time, right? That, you know, they're, they're, they were typed Maybe they were mimeographed or Xeroxed at a different time, right? But they weren't stored on computers and printed out numerous times, um, you know, digitally. Um, and so, uh, you know, it just might be that they're not prepared and not, no fault of their own. They just haven't been able to keep pace with the level of technology. And as I said, the level of classification that so many more documents uh, now carry. Um, but I, I think you're right. The other part, too, is the different, you know, aside from the number probably the type of documents, but also, again, um, you know, when the, when the Trump folks, when the, when the archives folks realized that Trump had taken stuff, uh, you know, he and his team, you know, obfuscated, delayed, didn't, you know, lied, didn't return everything that they were supposed to return. And, you know, the stuff that we know he took, um, some of it might, we'll never know where it is. We think that, you know, it, they'll never find it again. Um, but it is a broader thing, too, that I think you make the point of, which is, um, you know, whether or not it's reality winner or, you know, a CIA officer who took something home, um, you know, to work on, you're not supposed to do any of this stuff. Um, but to your point, um, it's the rank and file who usually get it far worse than anybody else. And I wish I wish it was different. It should be different. But I'm not surprised by that either. You know, what's really funny, though, is that with technology, you would think that advances in technology would make recording these documents easier. Could you imagine if every single document was beta stamped from, you know, ab initio, right from the beginning? And then at the end, there has to be that document has to be checked off that it exists with NARA and anything that's missing, then they go looking for. But you would think with all of the advancements in technology, it would be easier than in the olden days before computers, before we had this type of technology. I'd be curious to see where I suspect many of those documents may still be floating around too, right? Going back to yeah. like the Nixon days, going back to the John F. Kennedy days. Yeah, I mean, look, again, I think there were... There was, I mean, remember that. Um, remember back in the '90s, like when email became a thing, and everybody's like, "Email's going to get rid of paper, right? We're not going to have paper anymore." And what happened? Like the use of paper like exploded because now everybody printed the damn things out, right? <laughs> right. Um, but on the you know on the electronic side of things too, yes, you think theoretically you should be able to mark these things. 
Um, but it doesn't stop someone like a Jared Kushner, and I'm just speculating here, you know, from sticking a thumb drive into a you know classified computer at the you know at his desk at the White House, pulling everything off of it, and just walking out the door, right? Um, so you don't know. I mean, could something be cl- you know you know classified as copied or whatever? I I, I don't know. I'm not a tech guy. Don't see, pretend. I, I, to I wouldn't see. I wouldn't go that far and say that he used a thumb drive. You know, he's he's dumb. But he's not that dumb. So <laughs> the second that you stick a thumb drive into the computer, I believe that it registers the thumb drive and that it would register that documents were downloaded onto a thumb drive, especially if it's coming from a classified um, section. That's it. I would suspect right. this. The easier thing to do is just to take your personal cell phone and scan the document mm-hmm. where there is no actual trace, and then you have it in your phone, and maybe then he puts it onto a drive and then creates a thumb drive to give to whoever. You know, he's going to give him $2.5 billion for something. Right. It's certainly not for his expertise, but I agree with you. But going back to this whole document bullshit, yes, the Biden folks immediately contacted White House counsel. They immediately notified NARA of the existence of these dozen or so documents that were there. And you rightfully stated that. I mean, it goes back to how many years ago that, you know, NARA had contacted, was it 2021, something like that, where they contacted, said, hey, we know that there are records that are being stored at Mar-a-Lago. And I'd be curious to find out how they actually knew that in the first place. But there are documents being stored at Mar-a-Lago, and we want those boxes back. And I believe that those, some of those boxes were eventually turned back over to NARA. And that's where this young um, attorney, Christina Hobb, got herself so you know jammed up here when you had guys like Boris Epstein and uh, who was it, maybe John Eastman, I forget who the other uh, uh, person was, stating, hey, you need to sign this to acknowledge that all the documents in our possession have been returned, and stupidly she did. Because look, right. you see what's go- what goes on. Anybody that's close enough to Trump to put their signature on something that does it gets fucked. I mean, look <laughs> well, at you Weisselberg know better than anybody. <laughs> that's that's for sure. Well, look at and no, look at Weisselberg. As of yesterday, you know, he put his signature on a, a whole bunch of things, right. and he, now where is he? He's over at Rikers Island, right? Which is, you know, for many people, a fate worse than death. Probably, especially yeah. for well, a guy like him. Yeah, listen, I I don't care what anybody says. Rikers Island is not a place that you want to be, not even no. for a hundred days. So let me just right. move on and ask you this, Reed. You know. And let's just jump on, you know, Biden and the border crisis. Do you think that keeping folks from Haiti and Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua is justified? In your opinion, is the Biden administration approaching the issues at the border correctly? And is there really anything that Biden can do without Congress in this area? Well, I mean, the, the thing about the president, the presidency and the executive branch, um, and we saw this with Trump, is that the president has broad authority uh, under his you know, role as commander in chief to protect the borders of the country. And and so, you know, we saw him do that. You know, that's when you saw kids in cages and, you know, asylum seekers being turned back, um, you know, at the border back into Mexico. So 
the, the executive branch does have, I think, a lot of authority to do stuff. I think the question here, Michael, is, you know, are you are you trying to treat a symptom or are you trying to treat the cause? And I think the cause is the one that's a much stickier deal because whether or not it's Haiti, whether or not it's Venezuela, uh, Peru, Honduras, any place, you know, basic, you know, south of Mexico, basically, um, these are places that are unsafe to live for a lot of people. Um, they are largely corrupt, right? They are riven with uh, cartels and, you know, gangs of all sorts. And until and unless, you know, there's an economic and political system that allows people to feel like they can be safe, they're going to keep making their way north, um, you know, to to the United States. And, you know, in a place like Venezuela, which has been under a dictatorship for however many years now, right, we do have clear laws on asylum, um, which is if you are able to make your way to a port of entry and request asylum, you know, there's a hearing and all that other stuff. So um, are they doing enough? I think this is where the politics comes in, which is. Um, they are under enormous pressure, I think, from uh, immigration advocates uh, to probably have a more liberal, so to speak, um, immigration policy. Uh, but when it comes to, as you said, you know, whether or not it's a path to citizenship, different kinds of work visas, that's probably going to require Congress, uh, which, of course, with with now a Republican House of Representatives is never going to happen because they want to seal the borders, you know, from from, you know, Del Rio to Eagle Pass. And, you know, if they could keep the Canadians out, they would. Um, but that's the other part, too, is that, you know, it's not just a matter of who's in the country. We should have an idea, right? And the and we should just say this, too. I mean, I was, I was having a conversation with a guy in Arizona in March or April of last year. And one thing I think we don't understand is that a lot of the border towns, whether or not it's Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, wherever it is, um, you know, when, when the migrants come, when the migrants come over and they're picked up by the border patrol, they're taken off a, a lot of times to a small town or a town nearby, and they're just sort of dropped off and said, congratulations, locals, they're yours to deal with now. And a lot of these towns are not big. They are not, you know, they are not just overflowing with money, public or private. And so what happens is whether or not it's the Catholic church or local aid agencies are trying to figure out what to do with these folks. So I think it's a multi-step process. One is geopolitical. How do we figure out how to keep these folks uh, from feeling like they need to come here? The second is at the border, okay, who should be coming, who shouldn't? Why are you coming? Um, look, we're, we're short of workers, right? We know that. So it's not, like, it's not like we don't need the bodies. It's not like we don't need people. It's not like people aren't willing to come here, work hard for, frankly, not a lot of money and not great conditions to give them and their kids a better chance. And then lastly, once they're on this side of the border, who's looking after them? Um, and it's a massive undertaking. And I think that uh, you could probably spend your entire presidency on it and not get it right. But, you know, as I said the other night on, on MSNBC, the last time we came anywhere close to comprehensive immigration reform was 2007, when President George W. Bush, Senator John McCain, and Senator Ted Kennedy came within it an inch of getting something done, and it was ultimately the right wing uh, of the Republican Party that scrapped it. Because this is the other part, Michael. It gives the 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 MAGA movement the perfect thing to say: we are being invaded by those people. They're coming to steal your jobs. They're coming to rape your daughters. They're MS-13. So it all feeds back into that, that, that loop of white revanchism, you know, in the middle of the country where, you know, look, are there, are there more, you know, Latin American immigrants now than there were 10 years ago? Well, sure. 
you know, but are they, you know, are a lot of places being overrun? No, but then you have the inhumane pieces of like Greg Abbott sending, you know, sending migrants on buses on Christmas Eve to Washington, D.C., or, or you know, um, Ron DeSantis, who's just flat out human trafficking people. Yeah. You know, what's amazing is I saw there was a release um, by the Senate Republican Conference and they put out a, was it like a five or four page document and they, they entitle it Biden's border crisis is the worst in American history. His policies continue to make it worse. And their key takeaways from this four-page document is that under Joe Biden, America is facing the worst border crisis in our history. That may be true. That may be true. And you know why it may be true, Reed? Because every politician over the last five decades has kicked the fucking can down the road and not been able to deal with it. This is one of those topics that is exceptionally difficult to deal with because you don't want to make America a closed society, right? Like if you wanted to become a citizen of Mexico, you cannot. And the same thing I believe is with Canada. You just can't walk in and say, hey, I want asylum. It just doesn't work. That's not the way their rules run. So we've been kicking this can down the road now for five decades. Then the second point, key takeaway, President Joe Biden has undermined America's border security and the integrity of our immigration system at every turn. I'm not so sure how they can turn around and look at each other without laughing at the idiocy of that statement. Because every single president, Republican and Democrat alike, again, has kicked the can down the road. And then finally, the third key takeaway, Biden's border policies are creating a growing national security crisis and threatening the safety of Americans across the country. That's what you're referring to. That's the fear. That's the mm-hmm. nationalism fear that everybody is, keeps talking about. And again, I don't understand how they can get away. We're not talking about you or me putting out something. If we did that on a TikTok or a a YouTube or Twitter, we would end up getting suspended for passing misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation. And that's exactly what this is. Well, look, I think the first part we always have to remember, especially about this iteration of the Republican Party, is that the truth doesn't matter. Uh, Facts don't matter. Uh, decency doesn't matter. Uh, intent is often bad, not good. And, and so, you know, they, they don't, they don't, you know, we talked about like they're, they're trying to instill fear. Um, that's really the whole thing. This is really just, I mean, to, to probably make, to put too fine a point on it, Michael, this is really about scaring the hell out of working class, pissing off working class whites and scaring white suburbanites. That's really all this is about. Um, because they don't care about the policy. We should also remember that in 1986, Ronald Reagan issued an amnesty to several million people, as I recall. Um, and so, you know, this this is one of those things where for many years, um, going probably up through Obama, right, immigration was seen as a net positive, whether or not it was high skilled, high, you know, high education workers in Silicon Valley or, you know, or or. You know, I don't want to call them unskilled, but low-skilled workers who had to fill the jobs that Americans won't take. 
Um, and you know, that's part of the system, which is you come here. Look, my, my great grandparents came here in 1905 from somewhere. It was either Lithuania or Belarus or Ukraine. I don't know, but they were getting beat up by Cossacks, right? They came here and they lived in shitty slums in New York, right? And they, you know, one by one, they climbed out and they made a better life for themselves. That's the idea. That was the great melting pot. That's why the Statue of Liberty sits there, right? That's what, to your point, that's what has made us different. That's why the other day I was walking out of a place where I was having lunch with my wife and there was one couple behind me speaking Spanish and another couple behind me speaking Chinese, right? In Utah. Where the hell else does that happen in the world where three conversations and three languages are taking place inside the vestibule of a coffee shop? Nowhere. And New I think York. that's the, okay. New York, but <laughs> you, right. Okay. You know, it, you're right. New York, because New York's an international city. I live in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> right? like, but if it could happen, <laughs> in totally Utah, it could happen anywhere. I totally agree. But then what they do is they throw these massive numbers to scare the shit out of you. They turn mm -hmm. around in fiscal year of 2021 alone. They claim that the United States Customs and Border Protection, that they experienced 1.7 million encounters with. And then they refer to them as aliens, right? Because they're coming from, you know, Mars or, you know, some other right. intergalactic. But they're aliens you know, at the southern right. border. Right. Um, and. Of course, that was the highest number ever recorded. However, based upon some new information, they're claiming that as a result of this, um, what, what's it, uh, Title 42 mm -hmm. expiration, that those numbers are going to be dwarfed by the number of illegal immigrants that intend to come through the border. And again, that 1.7 million encounters, that's only those that they were able to stop. What about those that somehow managed to evade border or patrol officers? And they go on to it. And again, the whole purpose is simply designed to scare the shit out of you. And I don't know where that number, I don't know if it's legitimate or not. I mean, an encounter. An encounter could be, hey, yeah, you, you see the individual and then you send them back. Okay, you mm -hmm. know, I don't know exactly what it means. There is no reference to what an encounter references, but you know, could it be the same person two, three, four times? Yeah, I mean, it could be, but I don't think the statistic is accurate, though... I will acknowledge we have a very serious problem on our hand, and we have for decades when it comes to immigration. I think the system needs a complete overhaul. And that doesn't mean that we let people just walk through the border. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that you have to know who's coming into your country. And I think right. that these people who are coming in have to provide some sort of benefit to the country, whether it's you know um, service, whether it's... Um, qualification maybe it's a it's a doctor you know maybe it's um a guy who's going to be working the fields i don't know and again i think the entire process needs a complete overhaul and i think somebody really needs to be the person to do it and maybe joe biden is that person i guess we'll see well look the first that yes you're right um, but the first thing that anybody, whether or not it's Joe Biden or anyone else, has to understand is whatever you ultimately come up with, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who are unhappy about it. And you've just got to be OK with that because there is no perfect solution. Right. There's no perfect solution. Um, you know, the, the Rio Grande River. Right. Is a, is a barrier only when it's a barrier. And there's a whole hell of a lot of, you know, uh, border crossings that no one ever sees. Um, and that's 
that is a problem to your point, right? Look, if, if a government's first job is to protect its citizens, territorial integrity is a part of that for sure, right? And um, you're absolutely right because you don't want people just sort of rolling up willy-nilly and then deciding, okay, I'm never going to leave. That's what we have a lot of now. But again, the system isn't set up for any of this because there's, and again, I'm far, Michael, from an immigration expert, but for the most part, you have asylum seekers. You might have temporary workers, you know, folks, as you mentioned, you know, they go to the Central Valley of California or, or maybe out in, you know, West Texas where there's a lot of agriculture. Like, I think for decades, a lot of those folks have, you know, come up to harvest for the harvest and they've gone home again. Right. And that was a totally acceptable system, both for the workers and for the farmers, because the, the workers want to go home. It's not like, oh, yeah, I don't want it to hang out. Certainly, it was certainly fine when Donald needed them in order to, you know, aerate his golf courses. But sure. it's not OK under any other right circumstances. But, you know, one of the things that we're seeing right now on television is the defiance of the Republican Party now that they took over the House. You think that Republicans will ever work with the Biden administration to solve issues, you know, at the border or any of the issues? And if not, why? Right? Because they're always screaming you know, about border protection, border controls. Why not at least work with the administration to get something done? Because it's all they ever want to do is that all they want to do is talk about it. So why now are they saying that they won't fund any efforts um, you know, that are made by the Biden administration, as well as Homeland Security, et cetera? They just won't fund any of it. What's the answer then? Well, look, they, won't, they don't want to work with, with Biden because ultimately you have, and let's just stick with the House Republican conference here, you, know, you have more than half of them that voted not to certify the 2020 election, right? So these are people who fundamentally, as far as I'm concerned, were willing to toss democracy overboard for their own power, you know, two years ago. Um, and this is why the current Republican Party is not a governing party, because it doesn't even like government. Now, like who likes the government? I, I don't know. Right. Americans have always had a chip on their shoulder about government. But the, the, op, the, the, the other answer is anarchy. Right. And that's not good either. In fact, that's far worse. Um, but the things that the Republicans want to do is to your point, this is why they're not good in the majority because their only answer is obstruction. Um, Kevin McCarthy doesn't want to have anything to do with giving Joe Biden anything he can consider a win. Um, which is interesting considering that on the other side of the Capitol, right? Mitch McConnell and a lot of, you know, he's probably got the biggest band of quote unquote establishment Republicans left. A lot of what Joe Biden got done in those first two years in office would not have happened without Mitch McConnell's votes. Um, and so there has been a working coalition in the United States Senate to get certain things done. That will now in the House will be over. They don't care, right? They just want to use all of this stuff as performance art uh, to try and make Joe Biden's life as hard as it possibly can be to probably, you know, help him lose an election. But this is the weird part, Michael, is that you know, the, the American economy has shown an, an amazing amount of resilience given all of the chaos that we've seen in the last few years. We've got, you know, near functional full employment, right? The stock market is on the move. Um, you know, yes, interest rates are high. We should not discount how much pain that causes, especially folks on the lower end of the economic scale. But what the Republicans are basically saying is we will do anything up to and including tanking the American economy 
in order to make Joe Biden look bad. And that is a hell of a bet. Yeah. I mean, look, burn down the whole fucking country so that you can retain your own power. I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. And it doesn't. But I mean, it doesn't. But look, I mean, Michael, this is the one thing you've lived this probably as closely as anyone. This is what if anyone listening could understand is everything you see. Yes. Okay. We consider it crazy, unbelievable. Like we need to get over the shock and awe of these people. This is who they are. This is what they want to be. This is the kind of country they want, which is chaos, right? For them, chaos, just like in Game of Thrones, is a ladder, right? It's the only way they can perform for the people that they, you know, that they must have from a, from a voting perspective, from an electoral perspective. And so, like, stop being surprised. It's like, oh, PIMCO, you know, the big bond traders, like, we don't really think that the debt ceiling thing is going to really happen. It won't be a disaster like everybody says. Okay, okay. But when it is, right, I hope you've prepared for it. Right. Now what? So let me ask you this then, because Republicans are now saying that they that they intend on defunding everything. I mean, especially any agency that has come after Trump, the IRS, Mm -hmm. the FBI, etc. They wanted to fund federal police. Um, as well. Now, Jim Jordan was saying to reporters yesterday that everything is on the chopping block. Who do you think that that supposedly helps? Well, I th- this is the ultimate question. Who does it benefit most? Right? Who does it benefit most? It benefits the types of people that Trump and you know his cronies surround themselves with. Um, you know, defunding the IRS. Like, okay, nobody likes the IRS. Nobody likes paying taxes. You know, but, you know, the idea that you're going to, you know, cut however much money out of the IRS budget, you know, okay. But remember, Michael, none of this, again, should be surprising because in 2018, remember, they passed a massive tax cut for the wealthiest individuals and corporations with no way to pay for it. Right. So every time they talk about tax and spend, you know, liberals, the Republicans are no tax and spend conservatives right it's like it's like they got a hold of da- matt gates's dad's black you know amex and they just spend and spend and spend but they don't want they but they want to hold to their no tax uh, you know orthodoxy ideology whatever it is and so yeah you can defund all this stuff if you want um but pretty soon bad things are going to happen you're going to defund the you you claim there's a border crisis but the next thing you're going to do is defund the department of homeland security that's got you know customs and border protection and the border patrol okay that makes a hell of a lot of sense it doesn't make any sense but i'll tell you what else does it make sense and there was a republican on television yesterday um on cnn who made a statement and i have to be honest with you i think most Americans agree with it. If you have $1,000 in your checking account, you cannot spend 2500 And that's what we're doing. We're spending money that we just don't have. And we're spending it on... Now, I'm not saying that hiring more IRS agents isn't the right thing to do. I certainly don't believe defunding federal police or defunding the police is the right thing to do. But I do believe I live with a budget. I'm sure you live with a budget. You know, good luck taking your your Amex card or your Visa MasterCard and going to buy a, you want to buy a Lamborghini. There's only one problem. You only have enough in there 
you know, for a Toyota. So now what are you going to do? You're going to take it on credit like the way that we keep doing? We cannot continue to spend the way that we're spending. And interestingly enough, one of the reporters asked the Republican, you do know that I think Trump spent more money, right, during his presidency. He increased the national deficit right. by more than any other president ever. So how does that play? And he said, but why are we talking about Trump now? Joe Biden is the president. At least he acknowledged that. Um, well, I think, you know, this is where, you know, the, the sort of kitchen table stuff is, is a handy political uh, maneuver. But, you know, you and I can't print our own money at home, Michael, right? The United States government can't. Um, not, without going, it, not without going to jail. Well, Right. That's right. You're going to, you know, a a visit from your friendly secret service agent who asks you why you're counterfeiting bills. Um, (laughs) But I think that's the that's the difference, too, is that it's, you know, uh, if Americans want all of the things that we have. Right. And we happen to be the reserve currency in the in the world, which means that everybody still wants to denominate everything in dollars. Then we have this ability. Do I agree with you that I think we need some fiscal sanity? I, I think we do. But then the question becomes, just like your, your comment, Michael, on immigration, who's going to take the hit? What's going to get cut? Right? Is it going to be Social Security and Medicare? Is it going to be the Pentagon? Is it going to be you know, this thing or that thing? And suddenly, you know what everybody says? Well, well no, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't want you to – I don't want that. But you're going to cut what I want? And so this is what happens is, is that in the last 70 years since the end of World War II, right, almost 80 years, um, we have been incredibly lucky as, as a nation to not have to make hard choices when it comes to this stuff. And now, you know, inflation is, is you know, nobody thought it would ever happen again, but it's happening again. Um, and so none of this stuff is fun. But at the same time, like you can talk about, oh, we're going to cut this. We're going to cut that. We're going to cut this. You know, at the end of the day, Michael, like, you know, there's a whole bunch of Republicans who are in close districts. Like there's 18 Republicans who are in Biden district, you know, districts that Biden won. And when they start chopping the hell out of the federal budget. Right. And guys like us start saying, oh, by the way, you know, they just cut that thing for your local senior center. They're going to start squawking. Wait, 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 wait. You can't cut it in my district. Right. You can't cut it in my neighborhood. Um, And so I I think it's one of those things that it's it's a handy political tool. But at the end of the day, as I said, you know, when when Republicans had the ability to really slash spending under Trump, they didn't slash spending. They slashed funding because they knew that there was a there was a political limit to what they could cut and still have a chance to get reelected. Yeah, let's also not forget that we had COVID and there was the COVID relief package and a lot of money needed to come back into society into Americans' pockets so that they can afford to put, you know, food on the table and keep the electricity running. And, you know, look, I I certainly thought it was the right thing to do. Do I think that there was a lot of abuse in the system? Yeah, I think that there's what? Something like a trillion dollars or something like that that's still missing, that they don't know what. I mean, it's really... it, it. any time that you put that kind of money out into the system and you think that our government is qualified within which to dole out the money, 
you would think that they would. They certainly have your social security number. They certainly have your address and so on. They certainly knew where to send the checks. The problem is somehow or another, whether it was the PPP money or, you know, or um, COVID, you know, uh, unemployment or whatever it was, there's so much fucking abuse that's out there. But then again, anytime somebody thinks that there's free money that's out there, and I really think that Uncle Sam at this point in time should be looking to recoup that money. I mean, I've heard a couple of cases here, at least um, in New York with people with PPP money. I mean, a guy took like 800000 said, hey, what'd you do with the money? It's supposed to go to pay workers and so on. Nah, he goes, the company was floating, was doing all right. My profit was down little so i put it down on a bugatti like (laughs) kind of fucking what i don't think that that's what the money was for but i want to ask you this read do you think that the gop shot themselves in the foot when they let you know members of congress like matt gates and the radical faction make a complete fucking shit show of the process during the vote for house speaker i mean or is it just what we can expect for the next two years this performative politics you know from the you know from the right because i've even heard a whole group of far left pundits bitching because the squad, right, didn't hold the House and Nancy Pelosi hostage, you know, to get their demands met. Well, I mean, this is well, let's there's, there's a lot there. First, uh, Nancy Pelosi is a, a hell of a lot better uh, congressional strategist and tactician uh, than Kevin McCarthy or anybody the Republicans have. That's one. Um, two, th- there are five squad members, whatever it is. Um, they can kick and scream all they want. Um, Pelosi ultimately made the deals she needed to make to get, you know, her speakership. Um, but to your first point, yes, this is, this was the beginning. Like this was the starting of the crazy train. The crazy train hasn't even left the station yet, right? It's just, it's just getting the steam up and it's going to start moving down the track. So yeah, this was something to be seen. Um, and remember, I think for guys like Gates and some of those other, like they just hate McCarthy. Right. They hate McCarthy and they love chaos and they love the attention. So from their perspective, you know, it was fine with them because remember that McCarthy is of the establishment. Right. He was a young gun. This is a guy whose main constituencies are not the people of Bakersfield, California, where he's from, but the Chamber of Commerce, banks, big donors like those are the people he represents. Right. And and he knew that like, I mean, he was going around last year, Michael. At a hundred thousand person, you know, uh, you know, lunches, saying, um, you know, look, I just need twenty normal Republicans, and I'll bring all the chaos to heel. Well, he didn't do that, and the chaos has only begun. But here's where his desire for power, power in name only, as it turns out, probably uh, trumped everything else, so to speak, is that he would do anything for that gavel. He would do anything for it, right? And so now that's where we are, which is just like, I mean, look. Desire for power is not new to the United States. It's certainly not new to Amer- to human history. But for us, the idea that someone as spineless as McCarthy would give in to everything, I think is not just indicative of Gates, but all the rest of them too, right? As I said, most of the Freedom Caucus like went along with McCarthy. Remember, McC- McCarthy got 200 plus votes to begin with, and then the crazies decided to make it painful, but they were always going to do that. And it was only I I mean, if you believe Trump, right, he was the one that called him and told him eventually to cut it out. I don't know if that's the case or not, but he's certainly taking credit for it. And McCarthy gave him the credit for it. Yeah. 
Well, so look, since we're talking about crazies, I have to um, bring in one of the more crazy things that I've seen in a long time in politics. And you can imagine how fucked up that's got to be. Right. And I'm referring to George Santos, the <laughs> New York congressman that just got sworn in. First yes. of all, I don't understand how he got sworn in in the first place in light of everything. But do you think that he gets recalled or do you think that he bargained with McCarthy and arranged some sort of like literal get out of jail free card, right? And who else made deals? And what do you think that they got? Because clearly we know that they allowed Santos to get sworn in so that McCarthy would have another vote. Right. I'm curious, what do you think or what have you heard? that Santos maybe is getting as a result of pledging his fealty to McCarthy in this case? Because this is this guy is really fucked up. I mean, you know, I'm shocked he's not running around, turning around saying, hey, he's re-Galen, right? Yeah. I mean, that, he, you know, he, <laughs> I mean, that you know, at nighttime, he's really Batman and he, you know, runs around Gotham City fighting crime. I mean, the guy seems to have done everything that's out there and now we all i mean each and every one of us know that everything that came out of his mouth was a lie i think that george is about to encounter for the the first real time in his life um what power is and you know what what dancing the potomac two-step looks like um (laughs) which is he they they said you're okay you're okay you're okay mccarthy got his vote and it would not surprise me if they leave him out to dry before long um, the Nassau County. Way? Well, because they'll say, you know, what'll happen is like it started with the Nassau County Republican Committee saying like he should resign. OK, so his hometown committee said you lied to us. You got to go um, soon. There will be somebody, some Republican member says he's a distraction. I really think it's probably appropriate for George to resign. Right. And then. Mm-hmm. um but, you know, they'll they'll want to make sure that if he they'll, they'll want to they'll, they'll work out the calculus, Michael, first, which is, OK, if he resigns, what does a special election look like? Is a Republican likely to win that seat given that? So, you know, he could hold on. But at the same time, like he becomes such a poster child for everything that the Republican Party is that, you know, McCarthy may say, I'll, I'll lose the seat to lose the headache. Um, because if it's eight seats or nine seats, you know, what difference does it make? Um, but I, I think it will be more and more untenable for Santos to stay in office. But of course, I've been wrong about everything since Trump came down the escalator. So what the hell do I know? Well, I think, you know, a little bit more than <laughs> what you're giving yourself credit to. But I also understand it's not just Nassau County that wants to chop him, you know, by the knees here, but also, um, the campaign uh, legal center that they filed a complaint with the FEC, um, you know, questioning not just Santos's comments and the actions uh, that he took, but his campaign finances as well. They're talking about having ample evidence that about seven hundred and five thousand dollars that Santos loaned to his or claims that he loaned to his campaign was actually given to him by outside um, individuals, which makes the whole thing odd considering he reported that he was only earning something like $55,000 in 2020, had no assets, and then all of a sudden 
ends up gaining some mega million dollars worth of assets by 2022 without having the ability to explain it. Yeah, right. I mean, look, I mean, it would make a fascinating documentary or, you know, if it was a show on Netflix, Michael, none of us would believe it. Yeah, I would watch it. Right. We'd all be like, there's no possible way this is true. I mean, he's the guy. I mean, the, I mean, to say he's to say he's you know an inveterate liars and you know an insult to to pathological liars. I mean, I don't even. I mean, the guy's so clearly psychologically broken, but he's also a hell of a con man. I mean, think about how. I mean, he didn't lie about. Oh, you know, he didn't go to Long Island Junior College, right? He, you know, he didn't he didn't work at uh, you know a Pam's Pizza Shop, you know, on the north side of of Long Island. You know, he said he worked at Goldman Sachs, like. Someone so should have, got, so someone should yes. have been able to figure that out. So let me ask you this. And then this again is on Democrats. How hard would it have been to do some opposition research? I don't care who you are in New York, especially Nassau County. Every single person knows someone who works at Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. or who works at what was the other one that he claimed that he worked at it, like either Citigroup or Chase uh, right, or something one of those, like that? Right. <clears throat> right? Um, not one person did legitimate, even the most minute amount of opposition research on this ass clown, because had they done that, they would have realized his education is a lie, his work experience is a lie, and if you're lying about that, Lord knows what else you're going to be lying about. This is simple opposition research. Well, look, this is the blocking and tackling of politics um, in the United States. And I would say that the uh, New York Democratic Party um, failed across the board at that, whether or not it was on gerrymandering, right, uh, or, right. or something like Santos. I mean, there are, f- what, four members, maybe five members, including Santos, in districts that should have gone to Democrats, and they didn't. Right. That's 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 your majority right there. Um, and so, you know, I, I assume that, you know, they're probably trying to figure out what's going on. But you're absolutely right. I mean, look, it's the same thing back with um, what's his name? The old governor of, of um, Virginia, Ralph Northam. Right. When somebody while he was in office found a picture of him at some med school party in blackface. Right. Well, you would have thought that the people running against him in was that 2017 would have gone back through every yearbook they could mm-hmm. find, but they didn't do it. Um, and sometimes people just flat out get lazy, you know? Um, but if the guy's resume says Goldman Sachs, you know, have, you know, call, Hey, we're looking for something, something, something. Right. Can you imagine? Tell us how was he as an employee? Did he do a good job? Did he have any complaints against him? I mean, this is so fucking basic. Let me move on for a sec. We didn't ask you this. Mark Green of Tennessee, the new Mm -hmm. chair of Homeland Security and an election denier, I may add is saying that his number one priority is getting Homeland Security Chief Mayorkas to resign. Now, okay, fine. But is there any plan for what Homeland Security might be doing under Republicans? Uh, no. Again, it goes back to the stuff we were talking about earlier. I mean, you've got, you've got you know, Mark Green, who, yeah, is, a, is an election denier uh, from Tennessee, uh, talks about, you know, Mayorkas. Um, and look, if, the, if, if his name was John Smith... Would they be going after him as hard? I don't think they would be, to be honest with you. I think he gives them yet another, you know, another way to say, well, you know, his name is Mayorkas, so he must be willing to just open the borders to the brown people um, and, you know, get him to resign. Okay, well, you know, maybe they will. 
um, but I doubt it. Um, and then you've got, you know, Chip Roy, who's a congressman from Central Texas from right, right around Austin, who, you know, made the crack about defunding the Homeland Security uh, Department. So, you know, that's fine. But also remember that I, I don't remember how many people it is, but I think the Department of Homeland Security is like 180,000 people, right? Who are also yeah. Americans, the vast majority of which, Michael, are cops. Right? <laughs> the vast majority. I mean, I worked I, I worked at Homeland Security in 2003, right as it was being stood up. I worked at FEMA and the 5000 people at FEMA were the only non-law enforcement people in the place. Everybody else is a cop. So if you talk about, you, you know, maybe we should think about this, like you defund Homeland Security, you're defunding the police. Yeah. And then and then some. But we, let me ask you this, then, because you're a former Republican. Yeah. You think the average voters are looking at what happened on the floor of the House and all of this crap that they're saying that they're going to do, right? Investigations and the general retaliation against the president and Democrats. You think that voters, you think that Republicans are good with no policy being um, enacted? Simply, it's going to be revenge? Uh, I think the vast majority of Republicans are uh, I think the issue for McCarthy and a lot of these people is that we saw this in 20 and we saw it again in 22 is that there are an increasing number of Republicans, what we call uh, the Bannon line, which is somewhere between, let's say, four, four and 12 percent of Republican voters, which is where Steve Bannon said that, that was the, that was the margin by which Trump could lose in 20 Um you know, if he lost by if he lost that margin in twenty, he'd lose the presidency, which gave us our marching orders at the Lincoln Project. Um, they're losing Republicans like I used to be. That doesn't necessarily mean those people are voting for Democrats. It just means they're staying home because they can't stand their own party, but they haven't made the trip over. But if you look at a place like Wisconsin with Tony Evers, gets seven percent of the Republican vote. Uh, I think Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, I think, got 12 percent of the Republican vote. Gretchen Whitmer, I don't know the exact number, but got, you know, it was it was a it was a real number of Republicans. And so there are enough Republicans who are willing to say, I've had enough of this. You're crazy. Right. And whether or not they flip to a Democrat and that's a two vote swing or they skip it and that's a one vote swing. Um, you saw. Look, I mean, it, it's single handedly between. I mean, the insanity of the party and the insanity of its candidates gave them a nine seat majority when they thought they were going to pick up 50 or 60 seats. And so right. do the vast majority of Republicans think it's great? They do. But there's that eight, 10, 12 percent who don't and they can't lose any of them. They you know, can't the lose old expression read, you know, be careful what you wish for. It could come true. Right. So I heard, of course, you know, Jim Jordan is now setting up that special subcommittee regarding the weaponization of the Justice Department of the DOJ, as well as the FBI to go against, um, you know, we'll call them Republican critics and so on. And the right. funny shit that's here is that's the name of my book, Revenge. How Donald Trump weaponized the United States Department of Justice against his critics. It is, to me, fascinating that they're going to create a subcommittee on this. And I say that it's fascinating because I hope 
that Jim Jordan actually opens up this subcommittee. I actually hope that they do investigate the DOJ and the FBI. You know, I'm still fighting for, you know, for the release of FOIA documents that I should be able to have received going back to at least what the judge had ordered, going back to August. So far, nothing. So I certainly do hope that they do it. Because at the end of the day, I think it exposes them in terms of what Donald did, weaponizing the United States Department of Justice against his critics, using willing and complicit attorney generals like Bill Barr, who went ahead and unconstitutionally remanded me back to prison because I was putting out a book. So I do certainly hope that he does, but I hope that it's expanded. I hope it's a bipartisan committee. So in that way, it's not just about Merrick Garland, who, to be honest with you, I think Jim Jordan is wasting his time because Merrick Garland hasn't done a goddamn thing yet. I mean, you know? Yeah, look, this is all about, you know, like you were talking about earlier, the performative nature of all this. I mean, this is about the deep state Right. Um, I would have I've, ne I've never understood about their hatred for the FBI or for Comey, frankly, because if not for Jim Comey, Michael, in the last week before the election, in 2016, yeah, Trump would not have won. Trump probably doesn't win. So, um, you know, but it is interesting to see. And this is this is a key aspect of authoritarian movements is that they want to dismantle the, you know, the power uh, ministries until they can get back into power and take them over. If that's the FBI, the CIA, the the Pentagon, that and remember that's what they were trying to do right at the end of Trump's presidency, right? They were trying to put all these people in to try and sort yep. of smooth the way for him to stay in office. And if he came back, that's what they would do. And so, look, it, the real aspect is not to discuss the weaponization, but to weaken those agencies such that if and when we can get a or they, I should say, could get a Trump back or somebody like him, that those agencies are are prostrate before whoever the new executive is and um, are willing to start using their powers against individual Americans as you've, you've experienced. Yeah. Well, I think we have multiple problems that's going to certainly erupt in Congress, especially now with the majority being held by Republicans. So my question to you, Reed, then is, how best can Democrats in the House defend themselves in Congress? How can they keep their places on their committees? We're already hearing that Jim Jordan has no intent on allowing folks like Schiff or Swalwell or um, Ilhan Omar and a handful of others to keep their committees. Um, I mean, because we know that voting is a block can be effective. But what other sorts of things can they do to stay relevant and legitimately do what they're supposed to do and that's work for the people work for the work for the citizens that put them there uh well first is i mean you know look being on committees is an important thing for a member of the legislature right that's where work is supposed to get done but if you're not going to be on a committee you know there's no better time in american politics to have all the time you want to stand in front of a microphone or sit in front of a camera and talk right um I think the other part, too, is not falling into the traps that Republicans want to set for you, right? So it's like, oh, the 87,000 IRS agents, you know, like, oh, no, 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 that's, you know what, that's really about, that's this and that, like, no, why are the, you know, that's not, about, it's about why are the Republicans doing this? Because they want to make sure that their uber billionaire donors don't have to pay their taxes. That's why they don't want this, right? And so just continually explaining 
why you're seeing what you're seeing as opposed to saying, no, no, the 87th, you see, the IRS has been underfunded and it's been understaffed, Michael. And so we're not collecting the amount of revenue that we need. We're probably leaving X, that, 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 that. Like, they're, get out of the explaining business and get into the asserting business, right? Here's what they're doing and here's why they're doing it and here's why it's bad for you. Well, look, the, I think right now the entire entire issue that's going on in Congress is a complete and utter shit show. We saw it in the nomination uh, for speakership. We saw the chaos. We saw uh, the nomination, for example, of Byron Donalds, right, who was being basically used as a diversity hire to contrast, you know, with um, Hakeem Jeffries. By the way, you know, Michael Moore made a statement about... um, somehow or another before the session is over that democrats will be the majority do you agree with that uh i don't see how that's possible yeah me um but you know we're in a crazy time michael nothing would surprise me at this point this isn't crazy this is stupid you know there's a there's a difference because you know crazy i'm not sure that you can help but stupid, you can, right? Read a book, do something to educate yourself. What they're doing is they're burning down the house. Simply yeah. to what? To fi- So that they think this is going to change the outcome in 2024? You know, which brings me kind of like to my very last question. You know, the interesting thing here on mea culpa, the hour goes by quick. Mm. I'm going to ask you for a prediction. I personally don't think that Ron DeSantis is presidential material. I mean, he can't even deal with these softball questions from the press, right? Then he hides from any kind of accountability, and then he debates, despite the fact that the guy is wickedly smart, at least he is on paper, he debates like an amateur. So how is he going to make it past the primaries? Uh, I think he's the most overbought stock in American politics right now. There's mm, nothing tell, I've my seen. Friend, do tell. <laughs> there's nothing I've seen so far, and I've been working in presidential politics since 1996, I think. Um, 92 even was my first pre- my first national convention, Republican convention. Uh, he has sort of the same problem that like a Rick Perry had. He's the governor of a very large, very conservative state where he has been in charge for a long time and has been able to do everything he wants to do. And that's great if you want to be governor of Florida for the next four years. But what he, I think, will start to embark upon here in the next, you know, three or four months after the Florida legislative session is over is he's going to have to go to Iowa. And Iowans don't care who he is. Iowans want to know why you should be the nominee and you have to make your case. And once you're done with Iowa, you can go to New Hampshire, who are even more flinty and, 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 and skeptical. Right. And, you, and so his arrogance, I think, is going to be is going to be a, a problem for him. And then I think that's right, which is, OK, you don't want to go to a debate. That's fine. But you know what? Like you might raise money, but you're not going to you can't write your own check like a Rick Scott or a Glenn Youngkin can. Right. Where they'll just be like, I'll put a hundred million bucks into my campaign account and we'll just we'll just use that to get started. Right? He can't do that. Um, and so and then he's got to stand on a stage. I know that you think that Trump won't run, but let's say that he does. Now he's got Trump 
and all these other people, and and Trump will be after him just because that's who he is. But the rest of them believe that he's the the sort of second horse in the race, and they'll all attack him too. And that hasn't even you talked about opposition research. We don't know anything about this guy yet. No one's and learned why, anything. Okay, about this so guy yet. so as everybody continues to tout the guy, and you said that he's the second. You know, he, he's, he, I don't see him as a second horse in this race. I see him right now as the first. Uh, I mean, that's all the Republicans keep talking about is Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis. You even have, you know, polls that are out there showing that if he ran against Trump in a primary, that he would win by double digits. Now, in a one on one race, but that's not what he's going to get. Right. In a one on one race. However, I don't believe that Trump is going to run. I think there's enough legal issues that are coming to fruition that will pull him out of this race. That's my that's my opinion. Uh, we'll see what happens. And I think it's going to happen in very short order. I think we see it before March 1st, to be honest with you. So now let's assume hypothetically that DeSantis is, why are they already not doing some form of preliminary research? Because it's not that difficult. It's really not that difficult to find out a handful of things. Just go to people that were in school with him. You remember what they did to Mitt Romney? Oh, Mitt Romney in fifth grade punched a kid mm. in the face, right? Um, that became this massive story about who Mitt Romney is. Could you imagine the shit? That Mitt Romney's a bad person because in fifth grade he had a fight in the playground. You can't well, find that stuff on Ron DeSantis? I, I think you can. The question is, you know, who's got it? What is it? And when's the best time to deploy it? I wouldn't do it now. I'm um, not saying I deploy it. I'm just saying get it. I'm, I'm sure. Look, I mean, you take like a Rick Scott, right? Senator Rick Scott from Florida, um, who just this week dropped a million dollar ad buy, national ad buy, sort of touting who he is. Why? I assume because he's going to spend $100 million to ultimately get 4% in Iowa a year from now, right? But he loathes Ron DeSantis. He hates him. So... If Rick Scott thinks he won't be the nominee, which I don't think he will be either, he'd be happy to spend plenty of money just torpedoing DeSantis's chances. And I think that's also indicative, Michael, of, of the Republican Party as it is today, which is they're all so self-interested that they'll be like, well, I might not get it, but he sure as hell not going to get it either. And so, you know, look, and this is this is the other part, too. And I know we've talked about you don't think Trump's going to run. These are all ultimately, including DeSantis, very conventional politicians, right? They're going to have a campaign. They're going to have people in Iowa, South Carolina, wherever it is, right? They are not, none of them have gone through the, the except for maybe a Ted Cruz, none of them have gone through the gauntlet of what it is to run for president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And it is a singular human effort, right? Uh, political effort. It's the toughest political challenge humanity's ever devised, right? And the it's 24-7. It's exhausting, right? And you have to be willing to do it. You have to be willing to make the phone calls to donors and to stand in line to have 125 pictures taken with people you don't know and you're probably never going to see again, right? You have to go to the VFW hall in Ottumwa, Iowa and speak to 18 people. When you think, wait a second, I'm the governor of Florida and I have to sit down with these 18 people, what the hell do they know about anything? And you have to subsume yourself to the process and the people who are willing to do the things mm -hmm. necessary to win have a chance and the people who aren't 
are eaten up by it. Well, I guess, you know, the old expression, wait and see, right? So, Reed, thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciate it. Your insight, as always, off the charts. Hope to see you soon, my friend. And looking forward to some more of those videos coming out of Lincoln Project. (laughs) That's for sure. Thanks, Michael. Take care. Be well, my friend. And now for today's mea culpa. If it feels like the whole world is falling apart, it might be because it is. At the airports, Wednesday, a key flight tracking system went down, grounding thousands of flights for hours. The FAA glitch was fixed by the afternoon. But either way, the FAA needs to upgrade its system. It's broken and it's old. The cancellations of flights have nearly doubled in just one year. And customer complaints are up nearly 400%. I mean, the FAA is a government agency, and Mayor Pete has promised a full investigation, saying that there is no indication of nefarious activity to blame for the error. But what the fuck, folks? I mean, flying used to be a luxury, and now it's just a pain in the ass. And indicative of a bigger issue that we are falling apart. And I'm not talking personally, I'm talking about our infrastructure. The good news is, this year, Biden's landmark achievement, Build Back Better, will begin to take effect. There will be construction happening all over the country, bridges, roads, broadband infrastructure. But will there be enough workers to build back anything? If immigration continues as it has been, I think the answer is no. I'm not going to get into the ins and the outs of our broken immigration policy because frankly, it's a fucking mess and I can't unwind. But the United States needs workers desperately. And in the words of playwright and historian Lin-Manuel Miranda, immigrants, they get the job done. As Biden has attempted to take on the border crisis, no one can decide if he's being too tough with the partial ban on immigrants from Haiti, from Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela, or if he's not being tough enough. Either way, immigrants are good for the economy, and our economy will suffer without them. Our humanity also suffers when assholes like Abbott and DeSantis use immigrants as pawns in a culture war that no one is winning and that no one could possibly win. But right now, schools can't find teachers. Hell, it's hard to find a handyman in Manhattan. But if for no other reason, we need to fix our immigration system so that our country can work. Republicans have total control of 22 states, meaning both the governorship and legislatures and Democrats, through a combination of legislative and gubernatorial wins in the midterm, now control everything in 17 states. Republican and Democratic legislators can be counted on to move in opposite directions on everything, from voting rights to climate change. But there is a labor shortage in all of the 50 states. So blame it on Gens X, Y, and Z. I don't care, blame it on something because they don't approach the job market the same way that my generation did. They aren't as likely to go to college or just take a shit job and buckle down like we did. I hear stories all the time of employers having to negotiate terms with young and unskilled laborers like if they have all the power. Not the boss. No, the boss is now at the mercy of high school-age kids that sort of kind of want to work. But they need incentives. Incentives like 
better pay, more days off. Apparently, this generation is more interested in their quality of life than in money. Or just having a job because they don't fucking care. Maybe it's a long time coming and the tables needed to be turned, but a business can't run without help. I wonder why we can't fix our system to include immigrants who want to help us rebuild our country now. These immigrants who are standing at the gates begging to come in and work. Are we still thinking that we should get hard labor for free? Or can we evolve into a, to an include immigrant laborers in our economic equation and into the American dream? I mean, can we do this safely? Can we do it legally? For God's sakes, 50 fucking years we've been working on it and we are no closer. So yeah, let's build back better, but let's start with building a labor force that's proud to do the job. Immigrants can help us fix our broken system. Immigrants can help us to get the job done. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa. Oh, baby, don't lie for me if I don't.